Hope you're getting some rest. Hmm? Yes? Hmm? Okay. Go like this too. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's good to get rest on retreat. And I just have to share that when I was walking in to the hall just now, a chipmunk uh, scurried into the ecstatic array of coleus that's right outside the door there. You know, that stack. Is that those coleus? Coleus, I think. And he jumped into one of the pots. He's digging one of the pots, and, and soil went spraying. So... It's like wrecking havoc there. It's pretty cool, pretty cute. It's hard to keep the wild out. So this morning for our our Dharma study, we're going to turn, move from Japan into the realm of Tibet and Tibetan literary culture to sample some wilderness some wilderness love and ecstasy from that culture. Um, We're going to look this morning at this song, this spontaneous song of experience from Jake May Lingpa, and I forgot somehow in pulling it off the computer to to include who the author was (laughs) and... um, and also the place, which we do know, he wrote at Sami Chimpu because he says so uh, in his memoir, Appearances Unleashed. So this is an extract from his memoir that I'm working on right now. I'm working on translating it from the Tibetan into the English. And, and that partly inspired this retreat, I mean, the topic of this retreat and the direction of this retreat towards ecstatic song because I've been working on this memoir and the memoir is full of songs. It's, 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 he gives a little bit of, of context and he does, you know, there's some prose, he sets up the situation and then he offers a song, he offers poetry. So I've found working with that poetry to be very uh, powerful. And that was why I brought so much of it into this retreat, because I found it very powerful for my own practice and then wanted to share that uh, with you, that kind of um, accessing the power of poetry and the power of the written word to evoke the Dharma through the natural world. And so Jigme Lingpa, a little bit about him, he... Um, he was a practitioner of this same tradition from which the treasure teachings arise. And in fact, he was a treasure finder. He was one of these treasure finders, Shikmi Lingpa. He was a Tertan. And he found terma in the earth. He found terma in the water. He found mind terma and space terma. These are the different kinds of treasures, right? He found these different kinds of treasures, Jigme Lingpa. And in some ways, this text is a treasure because the text, this text, um, not very well known in Tibet, 
um, was hidden. The text that came into my hands that I'm working from was hidden in around 1958-1959 during the Cultural Revolution. So I don't know how much you know about the history of China and Tibet, but there was a very rough period in the late 50s when China invaded Tibet and uh, bombed the monasteries and ransacked the libraries and burned the books, you know, huge book burnings, like just bonfires of book burnings, because religion, according to Mao, was the opiate of the masses and needed to be flattened and destroyed. They, they, they moderated their perspective later, uh, or they moderated how they deal with religion now, but back then in the 50s, um, in the Maoist era, it was about you just need to get rid of it. You need to get rid of it. So they were um, doing that and imprisoning um, the high teachers and um, torturing people. I mean, it was very, very traumatic. It was like the Holocaust of Tibet. And it was as bad as the Holocaust. So it's interesting that you know, we don't hear that much about it. It's not like people are talking about it or we don't know. I mean, most people don't even know it happened. But it was as bad. And I think part of the reason they don't know is the language barrier. How many people know Tibetan, right? And even now, how many Tibetans know English? So I actually heard many of the stories, like the first-person accounts of that period from many of my friends who are Tibetan, um, telling me what their experience was like. So I know, actually, exactly what they went through. And it was very Holocaustian, loss of whole families, torture, murder, mass murder, genocide, and uh, imprisonment. So anyway, it was a rough period. So in that period, m m to preserve the books, which were so precious to the Tibetan people, just like our books are precious to us, our literature is precious to us, they, um, they, they, hid, they hid stashes of books around their landscape. So when we talk about treasure teachings, they literally buried um, libraries under the ground in order to keep them from destruction. They, they um, hid them in caves and then walled up the caves. They did things like that. And even now, people are discovering those caches. Sometimes they discover them because somebody who hid them has come back to the Tibetan region and said, I want to try to find this. They've you know, fled and they're in India or something, but they come back and they say, it's over here somewhere. And then they dig it up and find it. So that was true with this text. So this was a hidden treasure, quite literally, in the 50s. And, and now it has been unearthed. So we get to enjoy it. And um, thanks to somebody's, somebody's bravery, someone's courage, somewhere. OK, so a little about Jigme Lingpa. So he was one of those types, kind of like Ryokin, who started out um, getting some kind of formal education. He at least learned. He, was, he, he never became a monk. 
but he learned how to write and read from his close relative, his uncle, who taught him how to write and to read. And he did develop some relationship with his local monastery, and so got some Dharma training from that local monastery, and ended up doing a three-year retreat at Samye, which is in central Tibet. And then after that three-year retreat, and that's where his memoir takes up, this, this, that this comes from, he became disillusioned with his life in the town, in the monastery, just disillusioned. He doesn't say exactly what he's disillusioned with, like he doesn't talk specifics, but he says, I became disillusioned. I became weary of life in the monastery, life in the village. And I decided, he says, to wander in the wide, wild world and to explore the ancestral lands of my, um, my lineage. And so he takes off on his own with, okay, he has two friends, so not totally on his own. He takes off with his two friends and he starts across the landscape and he decides he's going to go back to Samye where he did his three-year retreat and he's going to go beyond Samye into the mountains behind Samye where there's this cave complex, this complex of caves. Has anyone been to the Himalayan region? Anyone? Okay, yeah, some, all right, (laughs) good. So yeah, there's lots of caves there. And this particular mountain is full of caves uh, with rock overhangs and places where yogis can meditate. So he went back to this mountain where all these caves are, and he just starts wandering. He ends up in a cave, and he starts wandering from cave to cave. And very early on when he gets there, he finds this particular cave that he says is so comfortable and so um, the view is so spectacular that he decides he's going to set up shop there and spend some nights there in the cave. And while he's sitting in the mouth of the cave on his first morning after waking up from his night there, he sings this song. So this is, the, this is the setup for where he is. And he's sitting on the, at the mouth of his cave, and he's gazing down at the valley below. And this is what comes to him. So it, when reading it, there are, um, you know, there are, when we're reading Asian texts, there is vocabulary that we're like, what? And, you know, as you noticed over the last two days, you get to a word and you've never spoken that word before. You don't know how to pronounce it. So if you, so as we read, no problem. Just try. <laughs> it's not a problem. It's not a problem that you can't pronounce. And in fact, that's what makes exploring these texts kind of, Um, exciting because there's so much we don't know and it's such a different world and it's like the beginning of this entry into a different world, different language, different terms, different place names, different names of people that we've never heard and so we're, we're, you know, there's something very fresh about it. 
but it also involves some stumbling. So if you're self-conscious about that, don't worry about it at all. You just try to sound it out. That's what I did too when I was first exposed to these texts. You just try, and eventually, and I'll help. You know, I can help you. Um, eventually, you'll get it. So, some things that I wanted to to just pull out before we read it is just in the beginning, um, Father Lotusborn is a name. It's the name of Padmasambhava, who is the um, Indian master who brought Dharma from India to Tibet. Uh, so the story goes. But actually, Dharma was probably filtering over the border in many ways, but he's credited with having brought it. And Queen Dakini is his partner, um, Yeshe Tsojal. Dakini is this term that means, like, um, literally, it means sky dancer. Sky dancer. Dakini, the one who goes in the sky. And it's a word that means the sacred, the sacred feminine sacred feminine practitioner, something like that. Sacred feminine practitioner, Dakini. And then just going down a little bit, um, where it says glorious minister of Chimpu. So Chimpu is a place name. It's the place name of that cave complex. And below that, Indra Maritsye. Okay, Indra Maritsye which is also a name. I think most of the place names are, are pretty clear because they're um, capitalized. Yeah, so if you don't know what a word is, it's probably a place name. And then on the page two, I just wanted to mention one more word that I want to define. <clears throat> and there may be others that I'm missing, but this one did pop out at me at the top of the second page in the top paragraph a few times uses the word vajra <clears throat> vajra and vajra is difficult to define actually um, but I'm going to say um, adamantine which means diamond like something like diamond like okay I'm just going to use that as a, as a definition but um, those of you who are practitioners of this tradition are like, oh, so many different uh, definitions of that word, but let's say diamond-like, just so that you have something in mind when you're reading it. You can say Vajra, but at least you have something in your mind as you read it. All right. So let's begin going around reading together. And, and I would say... Mm, because there's not um, any particular um, um, gaps or paragraphs to read four lines, four lines, and then you can pass it to the next person. Um, and when we get to appearances as metaphor, you know, read until the end of that song. And then with appearances as metaphor, after ho-ho, 
we're going to again begin four lines each, just so you can get a sense. So we, we do begin again with the four lines each there. Okay, I think that'll, that'll be good enough. Does anyone want to volunteer to start? Yeah, you want to start? Please. Lisa. Father Lotus Born, Essence of Bliss Transcendent, Queen Dakini, Lady of the Citadel, Ocean of Saviors, Disciples Who Tend Awareness, The Child Deep Within My Heart Misses You. In this seventh month of the Iron Male Dragon Year, the glorious minister of Chimpu Sirs in the throat of the impious vagabond Indra Maritsi, here in this native consciousness. Oh, maybe, so yeah, I just realized if there's a period, yeah, stop at the period, because I just realized you started a sentence. You did. You can start. You can start with here in this native consciousness. Yeah. Here in this native consciousness, beyond the unfolding drama of the mind's six senses, these high snow mountains, pillars of the sky, rise. Sides ringed with slate and clay weathered with crimson vultures soaring, their base a home for pheasants brooding while marmots frolic in pika's burrow. These virgin slopes, untouched by human travel, welcome bees busy in their quest for nectar. At the apex of this wondrous place, I dwell within a pale, Turbinacle, spontaneous, natural cave, tortoiseshell, stone shape. A canopy of dark southern clouds erupts above. A diadem of mist hovers below, percussed with the haunting caw of crows amidst the spontaneous swirling rainbow colors of Togal, Light spheres and delicate threads dance, and the times three bodies realized, while atop the crystal cave of sacred Yarlung, this place ruled by the fire god, rainbow pavilions of the five colors are across, arc across the sky. I think, surely I've arrived at Udiyana, these colors piercing my water bubble eyes bestow radical simplicity. Aimless awareness wanders there where it will, while natural resting overflows abundantly. Punctured by experiences of infinite bliss, yet free from the caprice of sour, sorrow and joy. 
When my Vajra brother said, I need three spontaneous homilies in the lineage of Vajra songs, the fresh radiance of these reflections gently unfurled, and I sang this song of appearances as metaphor. Appearances as metaphor. Ho, ho. Deep in the vast expanse of insubstantial sky above, crimson vultures bank their wings with confidence showing off. So too I soar aimless and free from distraction in this sky of naturally free expanse of appearances in mind. Below, in verdant gardens with their fecund earth, the leaves of aromatic shrubs and forests dance. So too I, in order to proliferate experiences, train the energy of awareness within the sway of thought. In between, in the villages of human, humans of desire realm, Ravishing goddesses flaunt their clothes and jewelry. So do I, in the state of limitless, vast expanse, wear as ornaments these impressive impressions of appealing outer objects. to the melody of the swirling waves of Kokonor, dancers clasp the waist of their elegant spouses. So I too, in order to mix mind with appearances, reside in the ocean of free resting, but am decisive. In the courtyards of these great monasteries, Geshes engage in endless debate with refutation and proofs. So I too rest in nature, in a, rest in a state free from the eight extremes of conceptual elaboration, but forge a path, path of awareness within the afterglow of samsara and nirvana. On their thrones, dressed in silks, with cushions piled high, great lamas display all kinds of activity. So too I, in order to adopt the path of interdependence, sustain the view and meditation that discerns mind from awareness. Outside, a pleasant beauty arranged estate beautifully arranged estate. The proprietor cuts bed ropes for the servants. So too I, in a self-arranged cave, strongly subdue proliferating objects. In the snare of many beloved households, matrons exert themselves in agriculture. So too I, in the field of authentic behavior, Cultivate the intention of the innate freedom of the paths and levels. On the turquoise mandala of the highlands, 
Herders tend their cattle and sheep. So too I corral these lamb herds of thought within the enclosure of non-conceptual insight. On this country's narrow paths and solitary places, numerous bandits try to rob poor people. So too, I let the practice of pursuing the face of appearances plunder the eight worldly preoccupations. In these spacious, indeterminate lands, realized yogins hack at the jaws of watchdogs. So I too, at the portal to the vast expanse of enlightenment, send the dog owner of dualistic clinging on the run. On the threshold of preposterous households, beloved children play with objects. So I, too, in the hamlet of uncontrived naturalness, enjoy the amusements of subjective, wakeful awareness. In sansara, various entertainments appear. In nirvana, there is freedom from good and bad, acceptance and rejection. The entire mind has one basis, but a hundred moods. It plainly arises as the mirror, mirror of ignorance and awareness. Leaping into the clear light, Continued. Those appearances are bound in examples. Those very examples are joined with meanings. If those very meanings are commanded on with words, it may irritate the mind of your average person. But if you take it to heart, this is true speech. If those with knowledge analyze it, they will understand. I, this child of good lineage, cut the subtle threads of hope and fear. When uplifted and inspired, I take them into a song of life. I wandered to this unpopulated place, an isolated mountain cave. My mind free within, I plant the banner of practice, pursuing the doctrine of primordially pure exhaustion of phenomena. 
First, this awe-inspiring chatter. Second, this is straight talk. Third, these are words of the naturally arising enlightened intention. On top of this mountain that seems to ridicule the sky by the light rays of the great expanse of wisdom and love, I behave like a demoness indeed. Okay. <laughs> so let's, let's try. Let's try words that pique your interest, that resonate. Oh, no need to raise hands. So too I corral these lamb herds of thought within the enclosure of non-conceptual insight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just speak them out. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. About what? Okay. Oh, okay. Let's, let's hold on to that question. Let's hold on to that question. Questions, let's hold on. Yes, but just speaking out. But do bring that up again if I, if I forget to address it. Punctuated by experiences of infinite bliss. Pursuing the doctrine of primordially pure exhaustion of phenomena. Science wind with sleep and clay, breathe the crimson vulture soon. Sense the dolphin that appeals to clean from the woman. These colors piercing my water bubble eyes. Mm-hmm. 
cleaned the key leading up the cedar top. By the life rays of the great expanse of wisdom and love, I behave like a demoness indeed. So to our beloved members of thought within the enclosure of the non-conceptual insight. When uplifted and inspired, I take them into a song of life. are bound in examples, those very examples are joined with meaning, meanings. Welcome these busying your quest for nectar. Spontaneous natural cave, tortoise shell, stone shape. I, this child of good lineage, cut the subtle threads of hope and fear. Deep and vast, expanse of insubstantial sky above, crimson vultures bang their wings with confidence showing off. So to I soar aimlessly free from distraction in the sky of naturally free expanse of appearances of These colors piercing my water bubble eyes. Second, this is straight talk. Third, these are words of the naturally arising enlightened intention. So now some feeling words, some feelings that come. 
It could be the feeling that you feel from, from the author, or it could be the feeling that comes from you connecting to the, to the material. Either. Okay, we'll try to keep it to one to two words, feeling words, but thank you. Yes, no, no, <laughs> no judgment on that. That was great. But just the feelings. Okay. All right. So let's move into questions and and the parts where you were drawn that you, we just spoke aloud, just exploring more deeply why that, what drew you to that, and what do we think it means, or what it, how does it land on you? And so one of the questions that came up was about this word nirvana versus nibbana. So those are two different languages. Nibbana is Pali, and nirvana is Sanskrit. And because the Tibetans inherited the Sanskrit version of the um, suttas, the sutras, sutras, they call them sutras in that country, um, all the translations of these words are in Sanskrit instead of in Pali. Yeah, it's just a language thing. Yeah, good question. Say it again. Oh, geshes. No, good question. What's a geshe? A geshe is like a professor in the in the monastery. It's like a abbot, an abbot role, mm-hmm. something like that. It's a degree. So, question on Tibetan Buddhism in general: um, the non-dualism. 
yes, but yes, but there's definitely strong different emphases in different traditions and different lineages. So some lineages really put a strong emphasis on the non-dual and others put more of an emphasis on approaching that gradually over a long period of time and then a a couple of the lineages focus more on introducing the non-dual immediately when a student expresses interest in the Dharma, that the non-dual is the doorway. And then for other lineages, the non-dual comes at the end of years of study, and there's a lot of things that lead up to that. But it's, it's permeating those teachings in all those lineages to some degree. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I mean, it's maybe not related um, in the context of me, but I, I don't know this word, uh, tabernacle or tabernacle? Tabernacle, yeah. Tabernacle is like the inner part of a temple. A tabernacle is like a shrine. It's a shrine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I guess the five colors, uh, is there any significance with the specific five colors? There is. There is. Yeah, it's the five colors of the rainbow. So it's the five colors of the rainbow. And um, yeah, yeah. What does togal mean? What does togal mean? Togal actually means to leap, leap. Um, So leaping into the clear light is actually a translation of practice of togal into the clear light. Togal means to leap over. Literally, it means to leap over. Um, And sometimes it's translated as leap over. But, but... Um, it's referring to a particular advanced meditation practice that is a panoramic open awareness practice using the sky as the place of rest. A very particular practice that he's practicing here. So he's describing his practice of sky gazing. He's up there gazing into the sky, which is his practice. And then this is what he sees. In the sky, yeah. So these eight extremes of conceptual elaboration—I don't know what those eight extremes are. Maybe we can. Um, where are we? Second page, uh, seventh line um, from the bottom. Seventh line from the bottom. Second page. Eight extremes of conceptual. Oh, okay. All right. So that's referring to um, a doctrine in the Madhyamaka, which is a philosophical school that he would have been exposed to or studied because it's part of monastic study. And um, Part of the teaching is about all the ways that we um, reify, like things exist, things don't exist, things either um, both exist and don't exist, or things neither exist nor don't exist. It's about um, how we reify. And he's saying that I rest in a state free of reification. That's just his way of saying that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it has to do with the adjectives he chose, right? He chose, and so we don't know. We can't ask him. Yeah, we can't ask him. But he must have experienced them as something uh, poignant, right? Poignant. I'm Different culture. I don't think so. No, no, not that I know of in this in Tibetan culture. I don't think so. But he clearly had a feeling. They gave him a feeling, and he he was trying to capture the feeling that he had hearing the crows. Yeah, something poignant. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of gender bending in in in, uh, in Tibetan practice. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, what do we think he means by that? What do you think he means by that? Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe the darker side, playfulness there. Yes. Uh-huh. And any other thoughts? Well, in the beginning, he, he mentions, you know, the father lowers, lotus born, and then the second line says, dreams are keen, right? Mm-hmm. So then, in the end, he ends with the demon itself. He says, queen, bikini, yeah. lady of the citadel, and I don't get the impression that he's too... Oh. Uh, and so she's a, maybe she's one of these people of appearances. What is a citadel? Palace. Oh. Yeah, palace. And sometimes it's, it is, yeah, it's used to describe where a Buddha lives in, in the non-conceptual palace, so to speak. So it may not be a negative valence. It could be a positive valence. But I think, I think we need to be open to every, every read. Every read is interesting. Yes? I was, um, there's a common theme in the Tibetan canon where um, sort of a kind of an uptight, sort of scholarly um, male monk will sort of uh, who's sort of very fixated on kind of the structure and the, uh, the teachings, but doesn't really actually get the t- kind of totally missing the point as their eyes open 
usually by a woman who's described as sort of in kind of witchy terms or you know someone who's sort of outside the, the structure and they sort of come along and pull the rug out uh, from under them and kind of help them wake up. So I was thinking, you know, he's sort of playful through the whole thing and he's sort of poking, kind of teasing uh, uh, a lot of how things are and, and then providing the contrast. So I, I see him sort of seeing himself as this sort of trickster and maybe aligning himself with these uh, enlightened women who've been sort of waking up people not unlike him for generations. Mm. Yeah, that yeah, so one of the meanings of this word dakini is the is the female um, trickster archetype. Um, so that's what that's what uh, Eric is referring to. And many of the yogis of the in the life stories that he has read in his training wake up through the stimulation of the dakini. The dakini is always there, um, waking yogis up and yoginis, waking yogis and yoginis up. So they, there's this, this, this female archetype that is both playful and also challenging. Often they're challenging, and they're, um, they're, they come along, you could say, in the path of a practitioner to get them over the hump of their ego clinging and propel them into a selfless insight. So um, very interesting to think about that in our own lives, like who have been the dakinis in our own lives, who have kind of been there to stimulate us or to push us a little bit into awakening. Yes. Also, another meaning for dakini Portrayed, portrayed is also a consort. Yes, yes, can be a consort. Yeah, can be a, a partner. Yeah, and in the case of up here, the father lotus born is Padmasambhava, and the queen Dakini is referring to his partner, Yeshet Sojal. And she was a very powerful woman in um, Tibetan history, is a very powerful woman in Tibetan history. She had her own, you know, biography and her own texts and her own teachings, which is very rare if you look in, at Buddhist tradition to have a woman right at the beginning of Buddhism in Tibet who is teaching. She was a teacher. She, was, she had her own disciples, many of whom were women. And after her, she spent some time with Padmasambhava, but she also spent quite a bit of time after her partnership with him, teaching on her own and traveling, and um, she was a progenitor of, of the Dharma in, in Tibet. So, so, so he's really referring to a very, this is not just an archetype that he's referring to here, he's referring to an actual historical woman who, who did incredible work, and, and that he even honors her at the beginning is, is a sign of his deep respect for the sacred feminine and then he ends with the demoness himself, aligning himself with the female um, is, is really interesting. I find it really interesting. 
Um, my friend who did the editing helped edit this. Um, it's going into some anthology later this year. Um, she was really struck by it. She was like, did he really say that? And I, and I went back and you know, read the Tibetan five times after she said that. She's a really good translator. And I was like, yes, she did. And I sent her the Tibetan, and she was like, oh, my gosh. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, again regarding that last line. Um, this summer, my wife, my daughter, and I went to Japan and Vietnam, particularly to see the Buddhist temples there. And, and we had some wonderful tour guides. And many of the temples had wrathful deities, like as you would enter. Um, and they did appear very, very demon-like. And what was explained to us was they were seen as protectors. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the negative mm -hmm. connotation that we have in the West for the word demon would not necessarily be so in Asia. Mm -hmm. So true. So mm -hmm. true. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's true. Yeah, language can be so tricky, right? The word demon and demoness was, is like the best the best that I could do, or one could do, it's what most people would do with that word dreamo, but it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't hold the same um, negative valence. Yeah, that's true. And, and also this whole idea of wrathful compassion is a big part of the Tibetan tradition. Fierce compassion that is snarling and growling and protective and loving all at the same time Right, so um, so yeah, there's a kind of a um, embracing of that mood. And he talks about that, right? He says the thousand moods. You know, what does he say? The hundred moods, um, many moods, one essence. Oh, here we go. The mind has one basis, one essence, but many, but a hundred moods, right? So he's in, he's 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 he's, in, he's embracing the moodiness of the mind here. And, and the demoness very much is an expression of that kind of understanding. And, but I want to add one more thing. Just, I just think it's interesting that dremo is also, it's the word for demoness, like in the sense of that sort of divine scowling archetype, the divine scowling archetype, and also the challenging protective archetype. But it also means yeti. So, you know, the yeti that are, um, a, a, um, a presence in the Himalayan region, just like Sasquatch was a presence on our continent. They have a presence like that, uh, a man, be, uh, a man, woman, ape. Um, often it is a woman ape, actually. They use dremo to talk about yeti, which is the female. It's gendered female generally, unlike Sasquatch, which is generally gendered male in, in the, on this continent. Dremo, it means yeti. And so that what I find interesting about that is that yeti are part human and part animal. That's sort of their, their MO. They're part human and they're part animal, for me, that really stands out in this poem because he's so close to the natural world and he has left society in order to be in this wild space. 
like an animal, like to live like an animal almost, you know, in, in harmony with the animals. And there's so many animals in this poem, right? So it's like he's saying, I too, I behave like an animal. I'm, like I'm half human, half beast. And, and not in a bad way, but like in a, he's happy to say it. He's like, you know, he's, he's declaring his, his connection or something. That's how I, how just offering that as a possible read. Yeah, there's two of you, so you have to start with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes. is that what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what do you think it means to leap into the clear light? Yeah. 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 Yes. 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 And I do think that is a bit of there's some of that in the essence of this practice. Togal Mm -hmm. is is a profound release and letting go, kind of like um, leaping into the sky, right? Leaping into the clear light, leaping in, leaping leaping into the open, non-conceptual awareness, Mm -hmm. leaping into it. As opposed to gradually, yeah. Almost aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Something sudden about that. Yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's you're capturing some of the essence of that that word. Yes. No, I don't think so. I think it's too limiting. Yeah, it's too limiting because it, it has it has. Um, I mean, I suppose you could, but um, because in English, mm-hmm. you you find feel the negative. Specific. Interesting. It's very limited in its connotation. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, for me, yeah. also maybe at uh, what? Shadow. Shadow. Shadow side. Shadow side. Yes, yes, yes. I do think there is a shadow side mm. implication to Dremo in Tibetan, in mm. Tibetan for mm. sure. Like Dremo, you find them in the cemeteries, right? You mm. find them hanging out in the places that scare you, mm-hmm. which is a good thing, like it's leaning towards the places that scare you. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Well, that, that is actually a very specific year. And I could look the year up. I, did, I do know what it is. It's like 1436 or something. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, 1736 or something. Not 1436. 1736 or something like that. It's a very specific year. So the cycles are on 12-year cycles. So it's not that he chose the word male there. He chose it to identify the year. There are female years, too. It just happened to be that's the name of that particular... It's almost like he's saying, in the seventh month of 1736, he's trying to identify what, exactly what, what time it was when he had this vision. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it's not that kind of... It's not, in this case, a literary 
choice, yeah. That's my, that's my problem. It's a problem. It won't be that way in the final version. I just did that. <laughs> no, it's very, it's very, uh, yes. And, and with all of you reading out loud, it became very clear to me that I have to go through and be more consistent. Either it's I too or so too I <laughs> to decide. No, it's exactly the same uh, structure, exactly the same structure in the Tibetan. I just chose to put it in a different order in some of the verses. Yeah. I actually like that. You like that it's a different order? Okay, that's interesting. There was something about it, that it's different. Okay, okay. Yes? or enlightenment around sort of gender. Uh, but a lot of the Tibetan teachings aren't. Like they, they, some of them are, well, just outright misogynistic. And In all of Buddhism, all of Buddhism, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so just to put it out there, it's like yes. way slanted on one side and above hearing that people are interested in the divine feminine, but it seems way out of balance yes. in, in the uh, standard teaching. So I'm just curious how you as a translator and practitioner um, relate to that. Yeah. Well, I have, for my whole life, been very concerned about it and concerned about how we rebalance the Dharma, not just Tibetan Dharma, but all Dharma, all Buddhism, all Buddha Dharma, to reflect the inner essence of the teachings, which is really not um, misogynistic. And I think those misogynistic, those patriarchal valences and that, that cultural context is very entwined with some of the Buddhist presentations and practices and suttas and so my interest as a, as a practitioner has been to think about how do, we, um, how do we practice the Dharma here in the West and how are we going to not carry the baggage of the past with us and how do we reimagine a Dharma here that is um, accessible, that empowers people of all genders and, and how do we think about the Dharma given that our understanding of gender is no longer binary? Our understanding of gender, or my understanding of gender, is that it is a fluid continuum. And so how do we reimagine a Dharma here? And, and in some ways, I feel like that's what my whole life is about, is that. Um, and, uh, and in some cases... Certainly in, I mean, this could be, we could just talk, I could talk about this for an hour, but I'm just going to say a little bit, <laughs> then we'll take a break and then go out into the woods. Um, some of the, the, like, what we choose to practice 
has to be rethought and how we choose to practice. And the practices that I did in my training, I can't teach many of those. I won't. I refuse. Like, I just won't. Um, some of the ways that I was, I was trained to practice. So I'm not um, teaching those things anymore. Um, it's it's a it's it's a very exciting time actually. I see it more not so much as um, there are times when I've thought about should I just not be a Buddhist given the history? Should I just not be a Buddhist? I've thought about that. It's full disclosure, um, but I love the truths of the tradition. I love the teachings. I love. I find the teaching on the Four Noble Truths to be more profound and liberatory than anything I've encountered, like a progenitating. That's like the very basic teaching of Buddhism, and it speaks to me so deeply. And the practices of the Tibetan tradition are, have changed my life, and so I can't ignore that either. And my solution is, don't do the things that, <laughs> that um, try not to engage with the parts of the tradition that uh, reinforce the patriarchy. Try to live on the fringes of the tradition, not in the center of the institutions where it's pretty hard to avoid some of those influences. And I've been very encouraged by the fact that I can teach. I'm, I'm gendered, I don't know, I'm more or less gendered female. Mm, or I choose that, I choose she, her pronouns, and I'm able to teach here. Would I be able to teach this way in Tibet? No, no, no. Um, so, but, but we have that freedom in the West, and we have those expectations are different here. And we've been able to make a lot of progress here, um, which we may not have been able to make. And things are changing there, radically, radically, radically changing. Women are now becoming Geshes, like that professor. Uh, women are becoming, Geshema is a thing now. Geshema, female Geshes, Ken, Ken, Kenmos. Are, are now everywhere. Kenmos are another degree. Uh, women who are now fully authorized um, professors in the monasteries and the nunneries. So those things are very new, but it's only within the last 50 years, but it's happening. And partly it's happening because those things started happening here and, and Westerners going back to Asia and saying, What's up with this? <laughs> and then, you know, even recently, I went to Bhutan and was uh, visiting a monastery there and, and talked to somebody in one of the... I said, well, I said, he said, well, here are our geshe, training for the Geshes, and here's... I said, well, where's the training for the Geshemas? And he, he was flustered. He was like, we're working on that. We are. We are. <laughs> yes. So what happened is last year... Her name, I forget, but uh, the friend who runs the, uh, you know, the 
female women nunnery there. They, for the first time in history, they had in Bhutan, all these nuns were traveling and they were being ordained as the actual monks, you know. Mm-hmm. For the first time, so they were all excited. Oh, fully ordained, yeah. Yeah, yeah full ordination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. when he said he was yeah. working on it, it was really happening while I was there. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These these milestones are, are, are historical for, for these cultures to begin to move into... And they, there was resistance in the early days. Even 20, 30 years ago, there was resistance. And now the, the sea change is happening, so... Yeah, change is slow, but important, critical. I feel like it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's essential for Buddhism to survive. You know? mm-hmm. It's, not, it's mm-hmm. not a question of, it's a question of survival in a way. Yes. Because as we evolve, it has to, it has to happen. It has to happen, yes, 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 yes it does. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. I don't blame her. That's really that's too bad. She wrote Which one? Oh okay. Okay. Yeah. Take a look at that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, whew, let's take a little break and let's reconvene at um, in 15 minutes, which is about 10:30. Um, we'll reconvene in front of the hall there. Okay. And bring your backpacks. I'm going to bring um, some garbage bags because I do want to sit. I want us to sit today, and it's a little wet, so I'm going to bring garbage bags for us to sit on, but if you have a tarp or, you know, a poncho, please do bring it, a raincoat, because we don't know what we're going to encounter, and we may, we may be okay, or we may have to um, come back, we'll see, but it's looking pretty good right now, and so remember your tarp, raincoat, water, um, I feel like I'm forgetting something. Hmm? Um, I don't think we're going to need our notebook, but you can bring it if you want. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.